Hello, I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and you're listening to The World Ahead. This future-gazing podcast series considers the big themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on the predictions and analysis in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is out now. Over eight episodes, we're debating the key questions that will prepare you for 2023. This week, we turn our attention to US politics. Republicans won a narrow majority in the House of Representatives in the midterm elections in November 2022, but Democrats held on to the Senate. So America now has a divided government. So what will the coming year, and indeed 2024, look like as the next presidential election looms? And which parts of America's political landscape are worth watching most closely? Two people who know and write all about this are Alexandra Suish-Bass, our senior correspondent for politics, technology and society. Hello, Alexandra. Hi, Tom. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And in New York, James Bennett, who writes the Lexington column on US politics. Hello, James. Hello, Tom. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of what's happening in Washington and the impending 2024 horse race, I'd like to start with a sort of 35,000 foot view. Alexandra, over the years, you've written quite a few pieces comparing different US states and analysing what they tell us about where America is going. And in the world ahead 2023, you argue that to understand America's future, you now need to watch the four mega states. So what are the four mega states and what can they tell us? Yes, political junkies are rightly riveted by what's happening in Washington, D.C., but states are actually shaping a lot of the political future within America, and that will especially be true in 2023 as Washington is beset by gridlock. I think of the megastates in terms of a large population and a large economy. There are four of them. In order of size, it's California, Texas, Florida, and New York. Together, they are home to more than a third of Americans and produce more than a third of national GDP. They're worth watching because their size, of course, makes them consequential, but they also embody a very important trend in America today, which is political splintering or polarization. California and New York consider themselves blue beacons. They're both democratic strongholds. Texas and Florida are red, and all four states are advancing policy that affects people outside of those states and, of course, within them. So what is it about these states that makes them such potent laboratories for partisan political experiments? And what sorts of policy issues are these megastates focusing on? All four of the megastates are under one-party control. Political scientists talk about trifecta states, which means that one party controls both chambers of the state's legislature and also the governor's office. Today, there are 38 trifecta states. That's about double the number from 1992. And about 80% of Americans today live under one-party control. Uh, So California and New York, they have already and are advancing legislation as it relates to abortion rights, LGBTQ issues, immigration 
climate change and the like. And then we see on the red state side pushing forward on Republican issues. And the, that would be gun rights, abortion restrictions, and much more. And we're increasingly seeing the states try and push the agenda when it comes to new forms of legislation that really embody the agenda of the different parties on both the blue and red state side. Now, one of the points you make in your piece is that the megastates are starting to come into direct confrontation with each other. What are some of the issues where that's happening and what sorts of things are they doing? So you're seeing this on a few different levels. You see this on the individual level where the leaders of the states are actually directly attacking each other. We see Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, running ads in both Texas and Florida, encouraging people to come to California instead of stay in those states. And some of that has to do with presidential ambitions, which we can talk about a a bit more later. But you're also seeing confrontation between the states when it comes to specific issues. We've seen this a lot in 2022 as it related to the busing of migrants from red states to blue cities and the conflict that that has sparked on immigration issues. But of course, it's happening on many, many more issues too. And we're likely to see it play out in 2023. I'd point to a few. One would be on guns. Um, And we've seen California in the last year pass a law modeled on a Texas abortion law that would allow people to sue gun manufacturers. And I think we're likely to see states sparring over bounty hunter laws and other laws as it relates to guns and abortion. And red states try and extend their tentacles to prosecute either doctors or who are helping facilitate abortions out of state or people who are getting abortions out of state. And then another area where we'll see confrontation is as it relates to the fight for people and a workforce. The labor market is extremely tight. Governments are really looking to hire people. And we're going to see states advertise in other states um, and encourage people to move. And of course, people are the engine of an economy. So which state wins the race for people is going to be very consequential for them in the years ahead. Right. James, if I can come to you, um, you travel around the country quite a bit to write your Lexington column. Which places have you found most informative lately? Is it the mega states or is it somewhere else? Look, every place I find fascinating and rewarding to visit. In some ways, what I'm I'm spending more of my time looking at is kind of a mirror image of what Alexandra is describing. I'm interested in the, the few remaining swing states or relatively evenly divided states in America because they serve as kind of a guide, I think, to the politics that Americans would prefer to see nationally but aren't able to realize under this kind of very finely the mysteriously balanced system that we have. You know, it's kind of a paradox of American politics, Tom, that there are so many safe districts now and so many safe states, as as Alexander was describing, yet it somehow rolls up into this national politics that's balanced on a knife's edge. And there are just a handful, maybe five or six states left that you could think of as actual swing states. And places like Nevada, Arizona, Michigan, Georgia, I'd include Ohio in there and certainly Pennsylvania. Um, And in some of these states, you see interesting experiments in governance as a result. You know, in both Ohio and Pennsylvania, we've seen 
one party cross over to uh, work with moderates of the other party to elect a um, consensus speaker of the House, for example, which is, I think, the kind of thing that Americans would love to see happen nationally, but is simply not possible with our existing national politics. Alexandra, um, I remember you wrote a, a cover about Texafornia, and uh, opinions have shifted over the years as to which state is sort of most representative of where America is heading. How has that sort of torch been passed around in recent decades between states, and, and where would you say it is now? Yes, that rivalry is still fierce between California and Texas, and you can still see bumper stickers and T-shirts even about Don't California My Texas. That's become an even more acute subject uh, since there's been so many Californians moving to Texas in, in recent years. I would say for you know, decades, people looked to California to understand the future of the country because California was on the bleeding edge of policy and cultural trends. And I think that is probably no longer the case. I mean, California is for the first time in 2020 didn't grow. Um, you're seeing people leave California and Americans choose to leave California because of the cost of living there. And then California, as we've been discussing, is so partisan that maybe you can understand the future of blue America by looking at California, but you don't necessarily understand the future of America writ large. I'm going to be spending more time in 2023 and 2024 probably looking at Texas and Florida. And they're really interesting because they embody a lot of the challenges uh, and opportunities that the country has. They're dealing with pretty rapid population growth, rapid rise in the cost of living and homelessness, environmental challenges. And then, of course, you have the battle between rural and urban and the state governments that don't necessarily reflect the views of the population centers, which are the engines of the economies in, in Florida and Texas. Um, so I would argue, although I'm sure I'm likely to get a lot of hate mail from Californians, that Texas and Florida today are the states that are carrying the torch. Great. Well, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to look at the outlook for the new divided Congress in 2023. But first, a quick reminder, if you want unlimited access to The Economist app and website, or a printed copy sent directly to your door every week, you need to subscribe. Otherwise, you're missing out on our coverage of US politics, including a fascinating recent piece on how America's culture wars extend into medicine. You'll find the best subscription offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. This is The World Ahead from The Economist. I'm Tom Standage and I'm talking to my colleagues Alexandra suich Vass and James Bennett about the outlook for US politics in 2023. James, we've just watched this rather painful process of the Republicans electing a new Speaker of the House of Representatives. Now that the new Congress can get down to business, what can we expect from the new Republican-controlled House? You know, Tom, when um, Kevin McCarthy, the new speaker, finally won the gavel after multiple votes, it was the wee hours, and so he can be forgiven for misspeaking. But he said, when he got the, the gavel, he said, there is no obstacle this body can overcome for the nation. And my fear <laughs> is that may turn out to be true um, in the year ahead, that he might have spoken truer words than he intended, just because the possibilities for collaboration, first among the very fractious Republicans in the House itself, then between the Republicans and Democrats in the House, the Democrat-controlled Senate and uh, the White House controlled by the Democrats, the prospects for a high degree of collaboration are not great. 
I think there are a couple of areas where we may see them be able to work together. Um, we're, we've seen a remarkable degree of convergence, I think, in the parties on being angry or frustrated with China and with the tech industry. And I think there's possibilities we could see bipartisan action in both of those areas. But there are unfortunately lots of other areas where there's likely to be gridlock and, and some that could really set the nation back. Already there's great concern rising in Washington that Congress and the White House will not be able to agree on raising the debt ceiling again later this summer when that comes due. That's just an issue of America honoring checks it's already written but um, we've seen brinksmanship played over and over again in recent years when it comes to raising the debt ceiling. And the Republicans, the um, empowered, really kind of berserker Republican caucus in the House has reached an agreement with Kevin McCarthy that there will be spending cuts in exchange for any lifting of the debt ceiling. And even within the Republican caucus, there's resistance to the kinds of cuts they're talking about because they would hit the Pentagon, the defense industry, as well as other kinds of discretionary funding. So I'm terribly worried they may not be able to reach agreement in the end on raising the debt ceiling. Now, in the past, a divided government wasn't always a recipe for gridlock, was it? So what changed? In the 90s, divided government turned out to provide an opening for real bipartisan progress. Bill Clinton was able to engage in the strategy that he and his advisors called triangulation which was peeling off enough Republicans to work with moderate Democrats to pass some significant legislation. But our politics have changed since then, and triangulation is just no longer a realistic possibility. The margins are way too thin in the House. We've seen Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker, can only afford to lose four votes. And the national parties no longer have control over the politics of their respective caucuses. Again, we've seen an illustration of this fairly recently in the way this small group was able to uh, resist Kevin McCarthy and raise money off it, raise their profile off it, get even more famous because of it without having to pay any deference to their leadership. And so the incentive structure of our politics has just changed in a way that makes it a lot harder to create these kinds of bipartisan coalitions. So I think the, um, the thing that's usually blamed for this sort of greater degree of polarization and thus more extremism is gerrymandering. Alexandra, this sort of goes back to what you were saying about trifecta states, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think that we have seen on the state level and then also in Washington, gerrymandering contribute to splintering with the political leadership, not necessarily representing the will of the people who they were elected by. We see this on gun rights. We see this on abortion, where the policies that are being advanced in states do not reflect mainstream opinion from voters. And I think we're only going to see more of that in both Washington and in states. And I think a good example of where the parties have also shifted, there used to be so much overlap between the parties and the differences used to be on the fringes. But now there's just such radically different views on things that used to be consensus. And one example of that would be the border and immigration, which is going to be a very noisy topic in 2023 and 2024. And it used to be democratic consensus that 
enforcement was important and that you needed to fund border patrol. And now there are fringes of the party that have called to defund or eliminate ICE, which is America's internal immigration control. And there can be no consensus now on border and immigration. And I think that's one instance among many where the parties have just pushed apart from each other. Well, this whole question about individual parties becoming more extreme was something that we talked to Eric Adams, the Democratic mayor of New York City, about when he came on to the Economist Asks podcast back in November. This is what he had to say about the nation's polarised politics. Extremism is hurting our country, and that extremism is on both sides of the aisle. The political conversation is dominated by the far left and the far right. And the Democrats, they have a responsibility to have clarity of their message. Everything from health care to public safety to quality education don't allow the extreme end of the parties that run on bumper stickers like defund the police to hijack their entire message. That is what has happened. James, one way of reading the midterm results was that Republican voters seemed to have moved away from extreme positions and people who took extreme positions questioning the result of the 2020 election didn't do so well. That said, we are also expecting all kinds of craziness from the new Republican-controlled House. So on balance, do you see American politics becoming more sensible again or not? Look, Tom, I think it's an it's a mixed picture. I hate to give you a, a slightly ambivalent answer here. I think we've seen a lot of sensible politics at the local level in this country, and I think at the state level we've seen a return to more sensible politics in a lot of places. I think nationally, though, the outlook is is more grim for all the reasons we've been discussing. It doesn't look like the extreme wings in both parties, and really particularly in the Republican Party, because the Democrats have so far reeled in some of the more radical positions that they were taking just a couple of years ago. But particularly in the Republican Party, I don't, I don't see that going away anytime, anytime soon. And I don't mean to suggest Democrats have solved their problems either, as Eric Adams says. I mean, they're still, uh, as Alexander was pointing out, on the border the Democrats are just unable to come agree to agreement among themselves over the kind of rational compromise that Americans overwhelmingly are in favor of. OK, well, I've tried to avoid talking about the 2024 presidential race, but obviously that's what's been lurking in the background of this whole conversation. And in fact, you know, in, in American politics all the time, the formal primaries don't start until 2024, though, do they? So what can we expect to happen in 2023 and who will you be watching? Let's start with you, James. Yeah, the presidential campaign is underway, Tom. So far, only Donald Trump has announced that he's running the Democratic party is a bit frozen right now as people wait to find out what Joe Biden is going to do. But all signs are that he intends to run again with Kamala Harris as his vice president. Assuming that that does happen, he is, I think, now likely probably to clear the field. I think it would be hard after the result of this midterm. And given the history, which is that a Democratic president who faces a challenger in a primary tends to not win the general election. I think that's a frightening prospect for a lot of other potential candidates who wouldn't want to be seen as a spoiler. 
that's not going to happen on the Republican side. I think Donald Trump has shown significant weakness recently, and it's likely that one, if not several Republicans, will get into the race. And I should hand it over to the to Alexander there because she's the expert on on one of those Republicans. Yes, um, Donald Trump, someone recently pointed out, seems to be doing a very good job of running against himself and losing, which presumably means if you're um, thinking of entering the race, you're just going to wait for as long as you possibly can for him to do as much damage as he can. But what are the, the calculations that other potential Republican candidates are making? And when do we actually expect to hear that they're going to enter the race? Well, I would say that the thing to watch in 2023 is whether the Department of Justice delivers an indictment of Trump, and that will be extremely significant in shaping the race. But the person who has emerged as the contender with the greatest momentum, of course, is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, whose career was made by Donald Trump endorsing him for the governorship in 2018. He won handsomely in 2022 his reelection. I think something that people don't remember about Ron DeSantis, because it's his COVID record and the movement of New Yorkers to Florida that are fresh on people's minds, but he spent a lot of time in Congress and he was a member of the House Freedom Caucus, which of course is the obstructionist caucus that's been holding up the vote for speaker. And so I think it's going to be really interesting in the months ahead to observe how DeSantis plays to what's happening in Washington or tries to avoid the controversy that's happening in Congress and what he reveals about his value set. He is somewhat enigmatic about what he truly believes besides standing for quote unquote freedom and against COVID restrictions. Of course, he's not the only state leader to watch. Glenn Youngkin um, has some support from never Trumpers, and he's the private equity titan who is now the governor of Virginia. And on the Democratic side, we should watch Gavin Newsom, who clearly has presidential aspirations. That's been shown by his travels and his advertisements in Texas and Florida and his sparring with those governors about what America stands for and what American values really are. So I think a lot of heads of states will be very active in trying to position themselves in the months ahead. Well, we could add we could add Tom to the list of potential candidates on both sides. On, on the Republican side, I mean, Mike Pence is the former vice president, is clearly um, laying the groundwork now for a presidential run. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo also seems interested in getting into a race and has left open the question of whether he will also challenge Donald Trump. The more candidates that get in on that side, the better it is for Donald Trump, as was true in 2016, because he has still got a hard core of support within the party that's really not going to go anywhere else. So the more the anti-Donald Trump vote gets divided among several candidates, the better it is for him. On the Democratic side, another really interesting person to watch is Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan. She's been very successful both in policy terms and in political terms in a Midwestern, bellwether, battleground state and is less clearly identified with the progressive left of the Democratic Party, at least compared to Gavin Newsom. And 
I think it will be fascinating to see to what extent the candidates are mirror images of the race in 2020, and then to what extent the issues will be the same that we just saw in the midterm election year and then also in 2020. But I think that a lot of the issues we saw playing out on the campaign trail in 2022 will be the issues of 2024. I think the economy, I think parental rights and education and what's being taught in schools as it relates to race and sex and sexuality, uh, and then the border, all of the things that have already been on the stage will stay on the stage. I think we're unlikely to see that many new issues. And then, of course, there's the increasingly inevitable looking government shutdown and how long that will take place. And Tom, we really could be looking at a rerun of the 2020 election itself. I mean, we really could be in the end seeing a rematch between Donald Trump and and Joe Biden, which polling suggests is something that basically only the two of them really want. I mean, Americans (laughs) in general would rather see different candidates um, leading the two parties into the next presidential election. But that fits nicely with Tom's view, which is to understand the future, you look back at history, don't you? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I'd prefer it not to be repeating itself quite so soon and quite so precisely. Anyway, uh, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you, James. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. You can join our US editor and his colleagues on our Checks and Balance podcast every week to follow each twist and turn in Washington politics and the rest of America. Find Checks and Balance on your podcast app. Next week, we'll be exploring forecasting itself. How do we go about making these predictions? And how accurate were we last year? Do join us again to find out. This episode was a Tempo and Talker production for The Economist. The producer is Tom Pooley and the executive producer is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.